Hi, everybody. Welcome to the War Memorial Opera House and the San Francisco Ballet Meet the Artist program. We're going to have a little musical accompaniment for a while because class is going on on stage. But that's good. Fills all those awkward pauses. So um, I am Cheryl Osola, a writer for San Francisco Ballet and editor-in-chief of Dance Studio Life magazine. And I'm very happy to be here today with my guest, principal dancer Teet Helmets. Please welcome him. Hello. On behalf of the San Francisco Center for Dance Education, which produces the Meet the Artist and other adult education programs, I'd like to thank you for coming out on this beautiful Saturday afternoon, the 20th of April, 2013. I'd also like to welcome our online listeners. Uh, many people tune into these interviews via podcast on our website, sfballet.org. And if you're one of them and you've been looking for interviews you missed or ones you wanted to hear again and you're not finding them, we do apologize for having some technical problems with getting things posted, working on that. Uh, but it might be as late as June before you find everything that you're looking for. In the meantime, the website's full of all kinds of other stuff, plenty of information, photos, videos, and the company's blog, Open Studio 455. So please take a visit. So if you come to San Francisco Ballet often, you've seen Teet Halimitz dance every prince role in the company's repertory, from Giselle to the, the uh, Little Mermaid, plus the occasional king, nobleman, elegant man of stature, and even a barber. His repertory is diverse, to say the least. This season, just this season alone, he's danced in Borderlands, In the Night, Sweet en Blanc, Onyegin, Ibsen's House, and Symphonic Dances. Tiet was born in? Estonia. No, the city. <laughs> oh, uh, in Vilendi. Thank you. I wasn't going to try to pronounce that. And he trained at the Tallinn Ballet Academy. He danced with Estonian National Ballet and Birmingham Royal Ballet, and then joined San Francisco Ballet in 2005 as a principal dancer. He uh, has been a guest artist with National Ballet of Canada and at the International Ballet Star Gala in Taipei. In 2008, he received an award for outstanding performance in Estonia for Sleeping Beauty in Romeo and Juliet. And then in 2011, he choreographed a work for Estonian National Ballet. So, Tiet, uh, you are in two of the dances on this program, Symphonic Dances and Ibsen's House. And they are probably, you couldn't find two more different ballets. Um, you know, Ibsen's House, which was uh, created by Val Canaparoli for the New Works Festival in 2008, is based on, drawn from characters in, in the playwright Henrik Ibsen's works. And uh, so it's very dramatic. And symphonic dances is, is entirely abstract. Um, they both have a lot of emotion, but they're completely different kinds of emotion. So I thought it would be great if you could talk a little bit about just the difference, because you, you created roles in both of those ballets. So just the difference in working on both of those. Hi, everybody. Um, 
working on Ibsen House was really special to me because originally I got to dance in it with my wife, Molly Smolin, and it was created on us. So this ballet brings back a lot of uh, really good, wonderful memories, but there is also a certain um, sadness or grieving in it because um, my partner, Molly Smolin, is not dancing anymore but I am still dancing the same part with a different partner. So it, it has a certain kind of very emotional quality to me. And whenever I see uh, original cast, there are people who have participated in an original cast in it, it, it kind of, it has like this um, wonderful historical quality to it. And um, uh, symphonic dancers, like Cheryl, Cheryl said, it, it is very abstract and there are certain themes and the music kind of carries certain emotions. And I do two parts. I do, I dance the second part, second part of it, and the third part of it. And um, second part of it is more kind of like, um, it seems like a girl's fantasy about this ideal man who comes in and out of her life kind of like in Ibsen House uh, sales, um, uh, the second part of that happens. She also has this imaginary character who goes in and out of her life. So kind of similar. And the third uh, part of it is um, just like this perfect, comfortable love, at least in my view. Those are the themes that I get in a ballet. And do you, do you tend to prefer doing a more dramatic type, narrative type role or the more abstract? Do you have a preference? Uh, I don't have a preference and I feel even if it is abstract, it, um, it certainly has a theme or a motivation behind it. So there's always a certain aspect of realistic approach to it. There's something that you can relate to in them. So I always just try to find that one thing that I can relate to and then I just uh, elaborate on that. A lot of times with narrative ballets there's there's you know some research you can do and in with Ibsen's house um, the artistic director of ACT, Carrie Perloff, actually came and talked to the dancers about their characters and then there are of course the plays to draw on. Was that really useful to you or, or did you find yourself kind of going off and doing your own sort of thing anyway? <laughs> it was really helpful, but um, it was hard because we had worked on it and we had created it and we were already rehearsing it all the way through and suddenly she appeared and she said, well, you're actually a coward. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, okay. How am I gonna change that? Um, but it helps. You should really know what uh, Henrik Ibsen's intention was, you know, and for this character. And if you're, if you're a coward, meaning coward in a sense that he is not able to understand his wife. He just sees her as a doll, like she's just doll. She's not a human being, she doesn't have emotions, and he's, it's kind of cruel. So I kind of put that into, kind of mixed it together and make it into kind of um, person who doesn't care about the feelings, but is still upset, but upset about because how it affects him, not how it affects her, yeah. The role Teat dances is Torvald from the play A Doll's House. And you don't need to know the play. You don't need to know any of the plays to understand this ballet. The emotions are really clear on the stage and it's really just a kind of a character study. So don't worry about that.
Um, just in, in terms of dancing symphonic dances, um, Tiet was a little bit of a hero the other night. Uh, Thursday night, he stepped in for a dancer who was injured during the performance. And you were already dancing um, one pas de deux, and you just danced another one, too. Uh, and I don't want to get into the details of that because we want to respect the dancer's privacy who was injured. But I just wondered what was going through your head. How, <laughs> how do you handle that? Um, I feel like it is my job to step in regardless. And um, I didn't actually think about it at all. I just went with the flow. There was no time to question because it was either gonna curtain was gonna come down and the performance was gonna be over or I could go and save it and make a difference and be respectful for my principal dancers and don't leave them in a lurch, just hanging alone on the stage. So I stepped up. And. I, I think you hadn't danced that particular role since last season, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And, but it all just was right there. Yeah, <laughs> it came back fast. Now, when you, your partner normally is Syl Sofiane Silv, who's quite tall, and that night um, you had to jump in and partner Lorena, yes. which must have been a really different just adaptation in terms of physics. It's actually quite amazing how fast your body adapts. You don't, you don't notice any of that. It, you just have a job to do. And the job is to make the ballerina look good, regardless. <laughs> have you ever had to do that kind of thing before? The pinch hitting? Um, well, yes, I have. Um, I recall in, um, when I was in Birmingham Royal Ballet, we, we, um, we had Coppelia, and um, a dan principal dancer got injured after the second act. And I was already actually preparing to go to sleep. And then I got a phone call, and they started third act, and I did the third act part of the, with another woman. So, and and you know, I stepped, I I helped out um, an accident that Tina had on during Dunkyu, and I came and finished, helped to finish the show. Lots of experience with that. <laughs> uh, if you're just joining us, uh, I'm in conversation with principal dancer Teet Helmets. So, you know, you do a lot of things besides dance on this stage. You, you have a bit of an entrepreneurial streak. Um, you've been, uh, you organized a, a tour with some San Francisco ballet dancers to Estonia, your home country, and you did a multimedia sort of event uh, at the De Young Museum, I think last fall. Um, and your latest venture is that you've been working on um, a, a line of wines and the sales of the wine is going to go to helping bring Estonian National Ballet uh, here uh, in June. They'll be at the Palace of Fine Arts. Um, so I, I just wondered, have you always been this far thinking? Is, how did you get all these ideas? I really, I don't know. I don't know how to explain this. I, there is a certain drive in me that wants to experience ballet beyond dance or and there is a certain feeling that really loves working with people that I have and um, the idea is that we often do this career and we don't really elaborate of what other talents we possess and I think like we all possess so many talents that never get explored or opened up and the idea 
always seems to be that I want to give this opportunities to, for dancers who would never otherwise would get opportunities to do those really fun, exciting things that they're good at beyond dancing. And so if I have an idea and I kind of see this person doing that and that person doing another thing, and if I put them together, well, that's the idea. And if I can carry it out, then I will go for it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned other talents, and um, one of the things that was a part of the De Young thing was a film that you made that involved you, Ruben Martin, Sarah Van Patten, and a lot of paint. Um, and you are a painter, or I don't know how much time you have for that lately. Um, so can you talk to us just a little bit about that? When, when did you get interested in painting? And actually, just let's roll filmmaking in there too. Um, this, that film was the second one. The first was the documentary that you produced for the tour. Mm -hmm. um, well, painting, I have painted ever since I remember. Drawn, mostly drawn, actually. And um, my really earliest memory is I remember one time I snuck behind a closet that was in a corner of my house, and I remember drawing this beautiful landscapes and there must have been maybe five or four and I just drew these gorgeous landscapes and just houses and people and I remember for years and years that closet was in the corner and it was always hidden and when we moved after 10 years I remember seeing the back of the closet and it was just circles just the line of circles there was no scenery there was no landscape but it was in my head very vividly and it was just these round circles. So it's, I, I've been drawing a lot um, as a kid, and um, I guess the idea of painting uh, was just the ways of kind of explore our bodies, because we, we paint with our feet all sorts of patterns on the floor that never get seen. And we do this in class, and you, know, you can hear us people dancing behind, and gorgeous paintings are being painted, but we never see them. So when you put paint on your feet, you can see them. And so these beautiful patterns get opened up and you get to see it on a canvas. But it's very much like a fraction of the moment. You can't capture everything. And your, your painting, you do, I think you said, primarily oil and acrylics and things? And yes. Klimt, Klimt was a big influence on you? Yes, I love, I love Klimt, um, kind of seeing, putting patterns together. It's really fascinating to me. Well, we'll have to have a show one day, I think. And, and, and how about the filmmaking? Was that, was that really just a, a natural evolution of wanting to document the tour? And, um, or, or was filmmaking something that you always wanted to do, too? Uh, filmmaking came about like this. It was, um, at, first, at first, I had uh, planned the tour, and we were going forward with it, and I saw I happened to uh, uh, speak with Quinn in the, in, the, in the dressing room, and he said, oh, I'm kind of unmotivated, nothing is really happening, everything's boring. And I was like, well, do you want to take pictures of my tour? If I raise funds for you to come t on tour with us, would you take pictures? And he was like, well, yeah, that would be amazing. I said, yeah, you can go out front in the audience, you can take as many photos backstage, absolutely, I give you the whole access. And then he said, well, can I document it? And I said, yes, absolutely, let's make a documentary. And we raised even more funds, and then there you go. He made, 
he became a movie maker, not even knowing that he had that quality in him. And then the, the, the film for the, of the painting, the painting with the bodies, um, how, did, how did that come about? Um, I wanted to do the event at the Diang as many aspects of my country's flag as I could think of. And I was thinking of these three paint colors, which is blue, black, and white. And I was thinking alternating them on different canvases, blue, black, and white. And how can I make the evening even more multidimensional? And so the idea of making movie, um, I approached uh, Austin Forboard with Rap Productions, and he just helped me out, and he said, this sounds really cool. And we kind of came up with the budget, and then um, we went forward with it. It was bizarre. It was absolutely bizarre. I've never, ever done anything like that. And I'd, it's weird that it happened because, I don't know, it was very strange. It's a pretty amazing film to, to watch these dancers just literally painting with their bodies and not just their feet. Um, and it's going to be uh, presented in a dance film festival. Oh, excellent. Well, give us, you'll have to give us some information about that. If you've just joined us, I'm in conversation with principal dancer Teet Helmets. Um, you know, you came here in 2005 and I talked to you pretty much right away when you got here. And one of the things you mentioned was that when you joined Estonian National Ballet at somewhere around the age of 18 and became a principal dancer right away, you realized that your training wasn't what it needed to be. And you started working with uh, Viktor Fedorchenko, I think, um, who really helped you recreate yourself as a dancer, discovering your own power and the nuances needed for partnering. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about what you did and how you did it? It was, it was actually very strange because I, I joined the company as a soloist and right away, when you've been with your classmates for eight years, and right away you realize that there's a gap. It's like, okay, half of your classmates are doing corps de ballet, and half of your classmates are doing soloist roles. And you immediately alienate from the group. And um, I didn't like that. It wasn't, I felt really strange about it. I felt like I almost need to lower my standards to hang with the group. And uh, when uh, the artistic director pushed me to do principal roles, I still felt like I, I owed something to the group who was um, not dancing so much or even an understanding of what I was going through, and they didn't understand. And so I realized right away that this gap happened, so that like, part of me just kind of died. And I, it was very sad, and it, was, it hurt a lot. And, but uh, Victor was really nice. At, he kind of took me under his wing and said, you know what, this is a certain responsibility, this is a certain opportunity to work with people and learn. And he really got me into that mindset. I still was 18, like uh, you said, 18 years old, and I, I wanted to go out, and I wanted to you know, have long nights with my friends, and I wanted to be a kid. And um, you, you don't have a time for that. You have, you have to grow up quickly. And the sooner you grow up, the more successful career you have. So he forced on that of not going home and sleeping and resting and coming back to work. And it was very tedious and very boring. And, but the rewards were fabulous. 
then they came the rewards of being on a stage and feeling the audience appreciate your hard work. And that just, um, that overtook that kind of sadness of losing your friends. And so are you, were you just then using class time to work in a completely different way? Or were you also working privately with Victor? It was, uh, class was, regular classes where we warm up and we do as much as we chose to, really. But um, the rehearsals I had with Victor, I had like a good six hours of just Swan Lake solos in a day, just working on every detail, every mime, every gesture, everything. Because I had no experience whatsoever in school doing full-length ballet. And so he, like, how you hand the cup and how you look around and how you walk. Every scene was worked out. It took hours and hours. And once you have that, once you, once you have done Swan Lake, I feel it, it kind of is, is the kind of a base of a classical ballet. So you really know how to be on a stage from then on. Then on, you don't have to worry about how you're going to walk in Sleeping Beauty or how you're going to walk in Chiselle. You, you know how to do it. But it has to be worked out step at a time. And, and part of that retraining also came from being able to see what people in the West were doing, right? Because until then, you hadn't, you hadn't seen like what Nureyev and Makarova and people like that were doing, and that, that kind of big, forceful <laughs> dancing. That was new to you. There was, um, I actually, I started seeing first videos of Baryshnikov maybe when I was 20. So I'd never seen anything like that. I only saw what I saw on our stage and that was it. I, uh, there were no, I don't know, there were very few videos of people, but we saw the videos of our dancers and they were very good, but I realized that there is a certain other level of dancing. And when I met my wife, Molly, um, we, she really introduced me to a lot of media out there and so it was, it was fun to explore all of that. And that got me very excited, and that's when I wanted to leave Estonia to advance my technique and uh, uh, have lots of um, experiences with new ballets. I think we could talk for about an hour about all of that, but we're not. I'm going to open this up to you. If you have questions for Teet, please raise your hand. Yes. The Dance Film Festival that the painting film will be in, do you know when that will be? I want to say it's in September, but um, I'm not quite certain. Yes. It will be in San Francisco then in September. Okay. Yes, anybody else? Uh, she commented on the fact that one of our former dancers, who's now artistic director of Boston Ballet, Mikko Nisanen, uh, came from Finland and was just wondering why we don't have more Scandinavian or um, you know, Baltic area dancers in the company. I wonder, it's probably because the countries are kind of small, the populations are rather small, and they would rather have their dancers dance for their country, I think. So I would think 
maybe that's why, but you have to have certain ambition in you and um, certain drive to really go beyond that. So it has to be the kind of a need of exploring something new, and I think Miko probably had that. He had that desire to learn more about it beyond just what he was getting in Finland. Uh, I, I have met him many times. I don't speak any Finnish, unfortunately. It's really sad because we're only like 30 minutes away from <laughs> each other <laughs> as far as countries go, but, but it is a difficult language. So, but I have met him many times and uh, we have chatted, but not, not really personally. Anyone else? Yes. When you took over uh, Thursday night, stepping into that role, uh, how did that come about? Did you just say, I'm going out there and doing this, or was the stage manager involved? How did it happen? I think, um, no, it was not stage manager involved. It was actually my, my partner, Dana Genshaft, who um, was looking on the stage, and she noticed that it had happened, and she also noticed that I was not even paying attention on the other side of the stage, so she quickly ran across in the back of the stage and ran to me and said that you have to go on now. And so I just run. <laughs> Always listen to Dana. Yes. Yes. What do you miss about Estonia? I miss, um, I miss food. <laughs> yeah. There is nothing better than your own organically grown vegetable food that I love. And yeah, I miss that a lot. Yeah. The question is about choreography and what the dancer's role is in, in terms of interpreting what he's been given. Well, I think this is also um, the really good question for the younger dancers who are working with the choreographers, too. The choreographer is going to come in and he has absolutely not a clue what you can do or cannot do. So he says, okay, I want to go from A to B. And you just walk and maybe he gives you some kind of a step. But the good thing to know is that he doesn't know how well you can do this particular step. So you can magnify it 100%, or you can just make it nothing. And it remains that way. So it's up to you how much elevation you give to certain pieces of choreography. The choreographer might say, oh, it's, it's too much. You know, don't do this much. Or he might go, whoa, I didn't know you can do this. So he's gonna might use the same step again in another part of the choreography because it looks so magnificent. So it is really up to the person what the choreography looks like or how good the choreography is. And, and to a certain extent to the choreographer who really knows if they really know what they want exactly, then they can of course achieve that. But if they're more open to 
uh, figuring out what this particular dancer can do, this particular dancer can make it something completely different what the choreographer originally intended and by just showcasing their talent. There are many moments in the studio where a dancer interprets something differently from what the choreographer intended and they end up using it or, or building on that. So there's, there can be a lot of give and take. There was a question here, yeah. This has to be quick because we're out of time, but the question is when dancers retire, what do they do? And do they have to, require to retire at a certain age? And the answer is no. Well, it really is up to the person. You have to retire. You can't dance forever. Nobody's gonna wanna see you forever on the stage. <laughs> and that's just the truth. And um, if you can somehow mask it, if you can somehow cover it up and still look all right, then good for you, but eventually you're gonna have to retire. And so it's good to, it's good to really explore like already five years into before your retirement of what it is that you really are good at beyond dancing, or do you wanna stay in a dancing field? And I believe that if, if there is a certain kind of uh, motivation that you have, that there is a certain energy that draws these people into them. So there is a certain um, interest that starts happening or people noticing you in the other way. And, um, and also, how are you able to give up your career? Because it is a huge part of your life. You've grown up since from the ages of, with the girls, it's ages of seven. I mean, and in the give it up after 25 years of dancing professionally, a huge part of you is dying. It's an enormous part of you. So you have to start this grieving process a lot sooner before you retire because otherwise it will often people become bitter and frustrated. But if you accept the fact that you are in fact done and you're moving on, then it's, it's a lot um, gentler um, retirement. We are over time and I apologize. Thank you so much for coming and enjoy the performance today. And thank you, Teats. Thank you so much. <laughs>